God, as we turn to your word now, we think as think upon you as our creator, the one who made the eye and the one who formed the ear. And yet, Lord, in making us, because of sin, you must remake us. You must reshape the ear. You must refit the eye that it would hear your voice unto salvation and see your word and benefit from it unto eternal life. So this is our prayer for illumination today, that you would truly illumine us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's word to us this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. As I've mentioned, one of the benefits of preaching through books of Scripture and preaching sequentially is that the preacher comes to texts that he wouldn't pick otherwise, and this is one of those texts this morning. Try as I might, Polly did not agree to preach this morning's sermon, so I'm stuck with it. I thought about being sick and leaving it to Marty, but he said, I know where you live. I will come get you. So with that in mind, this is God's word, not ours. Let us listen to him. Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. Please be seated. Scripture has two minds about age. On the one hand, we're to grow up and stop being babies. On the other hand, we're to stop being so grown up, so doggone sophisticated. Peter says, like babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Unless you repent and become like children, Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We truly have sinned, and our sin, like, like too much exposure to the sun, has aged us. And I think nowhere else is the emptiness of our so-called grown-up frame of mind more evident than when it comes to relations between the sexes. We have discovered the hard way that our differences mean difficulty, and that the hurt that develops results in degradation, divorce, and even death. My conclusion last week was that gospel masculinity depends on men being confident in faith and in that security, in that confidence that comes from the gospel. They are freed up to be courageous, risk-taking leaders amongst the people of God, advancing God's mission in the world. Gospel femininity is no different than that. It calls on women to have confidence in the gospel and calling them in that confidence to take part in God's mission in the world. 
As I did with gospel masculinity, I'd like to first address what the text actually says, and then in the second part of the sermon, I'll develop three specific applications. And as a reminder, there will be a time after the benediction where I'll answer questions, either ones that have been sent in to me by text or by, uh, if you want to write it down or if you want to simply ask it. So first, the explanation. Paul starts chapter 2 with a statement about the great mission of God in the world, which is salvation. And then the church's central role in that program, which is prayer. And then Paul, in verse 8 of of our passage, calls on men to play a central role in that mission of prayer by leading God's people in prayer and not in what they're naturally good at, which is arguing and fighting. So if you look at this passage, and and so he continues then, beginning in verse 9, to address a specific group amongst the congregation, and he addresses the women. If you look at this passage, you can notice that there's a pattern that appears. First, Paul lays down a principle, and then he gives a specific application of that principle, and then he addresses the, the idea of a reorientation. So there's a principle that he states first, and then he gives an application of that principle, of how that principle isn't being followed, and then he reorients his audience by talking about what should be done instead. So the principle, first of all, in the section of verses 9 and 10, which talks about adornment or dress, clothing, the principle is one of self-control. Our text literally says in verse 9 that women should, in clothing, be orderly. The word clothing in Greek has as a broader meaning than simply the outer covering of the body. It also includes inner character, as in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your clothing or your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight. The Greek word for modesty suggests being reserved and having a desire to avoid dishonor. The Greek word for self-control, which is also in verse 9, suggests having a, a, a kind of mastery over your desires, specifically sexual and emotional desires. That's the principle. The application, which is in second, the second half of verse 9, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, is related to how women are dressing in Ephesus. Contemporary literature reveals that, that women of first century Greco-Roman culture spend an inordinate amount of time decorating themselves on their appearance, and reading classic literature of the time suggests that the braiding of the hair was a specific Roman hairstyle. If you've seen any of, any of the shows that attempt to recreate Roman culture, uh, women's dress in, in, in those shows, those movies or those TV shows, can, can show a hairstyle that's in an elaborate arrangement of braids. Uh, classic literature also shows that Paul's words here are pretty gentle in comparison to other critics of the time. And this was a popular thing to criticize at the time by pagan, non-Christian authors, was the way that women were dressing themselves. 
it also seems that the kind of dress that Paul was observing taking place amongst the people of God in Ephesus was a kind of dress that would be very similar to that of prostitutes. So the focus on, is on honor. And so as this is an application of the general principle, the idea is that, that certain aspects of clothing or certain kinds of hairstyles themselves are not forbidden. It's the way that this was being done at that time. And so in verse 10, we see we move from application to a reorientation. Paul steers the women in Ephesus away from this kind of an elaborate or um, decoration of themselves to being women whose lives are beautiful by the good works that they do. Paul's idea of good works isn't just specifically related to the way that women dress themselves, that being one of many good works. It's rather the whole spectrum of obedience that God calls women to. It's an example, I think, of what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The second part of our text is verses 11 through 15, and it addresses another aspect of conduct of women in the midst of a worshiping community. Again, Paul takes this approach of first talking about a principle, and then talking about an application, and then reorienting his audience to the kind of behavior that he thinks is more fitting. Additionally, in this passage, he gives uh, a kind of a foundation. He, he, he quotes Old Testament scripture as a way of, of basing his, his arguments here. So what's the principle, first of all? In verse 11, the first part of verse 11, Paul says, women are to learn. This is a much neglected aspect of this text. We tend to laser in on the things that women are not to do, and we blow right by the very first thing that he says. Women are, be, are to be disciples. So he says women are to learn. In the prevailing culture of the time, this would have been revolutionary. The idea was that it's okay if women are there, but they're, they're not there to learn. They're just there to sort of be there. So then he clarifies how it is that he wants women to learn. He says that women are to learn in silence, or as the ESV puts it here in my text, quietly. What silence means is expressed in the next part of the text in verse 11, with all submissiveness. Submissiveness or subjection in the Bible is mentioned lots and lots of times. Here are some specific instances where we can find it. Christians are to submit to God in Hebrews 12, 9, be subject to the Father of spirits. All things are to submit to Jesus, Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet. People are to submit to those in authority over them, Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And there are specific texts, and especially this word is used with reference to wives submitting to their husbands, Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5.21, Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3.1, etc. So the way I see this as I read these different passages on submission related to women is that it is a voluntary, willing compliance on the part of an equal to one whom God, not by gifting, but by design, has put in authority as head. So submission is a voluntary, willing compliance 
by an equal towards someone, not by gifting, but by God's design that he has put in authority or as head. It also becomes, in this particular passage, which doesn't address husbands and wives, but it addresses the relationship of women to men who are in authority in the church. That's the principle. What's the application? Then he, he applies this in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to be quiet. So Paul is concerned that women's learning, that the discipleship of women, which was so countercultural at the time, doesn't go beyond its creational limits, but instead recognizes the order in the church. So Paul applies the learning and submission principle of verse 11 and verse 12 by saying women are not to teach and women are not to have authority. Teaching, as you probably know, is something that we're all called to do in different contexts. Colossians 3.16 is helpful here. If you want to flip to that, let's do that. Paul says in Colossians 3, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions. That's Colossians 2. Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you meaning everyone, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So teaching is the calling of every believer, but the practice and function of teaching amidst the gathered people of God, Paul says, is restricted to men. Paul adds to his explanation about how women are to learn but not teach in the midst of the assembly, by saying that women are also not to exercise authority. So we're talking about the function of teaching in the assembled people of God, and then that function of oversight, which is given to elders or overseers, as we're going to see in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. That's the application. Then before Paul reorients us, he gives an explanation, which I find fascinating. He says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So I think seeing that there needed to be some additional grounding here, Paul, Paul explains himself based on Old Testament scripture, and he's quoting the Old Testament when he, when he writes what he does in verse 13 and 14. Adam and Eve are archetypes of men and women. They are the first man and the first woman, woman. And so what Paul does is he imitates Jesus' teaching style when in Matthew 19, Jesus, speaking about divorce, appeals to the creation account of Adam and Eve. And he said God didn't initially make them two but one flesh. And on the basis of that pre-fall creation account, Jesus defends or explains what God's view about divorce is. Likewise, Paul appeals to the order of creation as the basis for focusing the calling of women to learn in the assembly, not to teach or exercise authority. Paul's point is that by God's design, chronological priority determines functional calling in the church. That's Paul's point. And then, I think, in verse 14, Paul shows that 
that the result of not following this chronological priority, the inversion of that chronological priority, results in confusion and disorder, to say the least. The fall of man, according to Paul, is a warning of the consequences of reversing leadership roles. Then we get to the reorientation. So we see the principle, the application. Now he adds that example in this case, and now he reorients us in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul's reorientation is that women are to learn focusing on God's program of salvation. Paul shows how women are to be saved by faith in God's promised Savior. Through childbirth, I believe, refers to the promise to Eve that she would bear the one who would crush the serpent. And then he says, through childbirth, looking forward, as you can see, the text uses the word they, through childbirth, meaning that women unique calling is not to lead, but to support and nurture and assist in the assembly of the saints. I pointed out the shift in uh, pronouns. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So she points back to Eve, but then also points forward, I believe, to all women in all circumstances, specifically in Ephesus, but also to, the, to this day. But in either case, whether it's pointing back to Eve or forward to the women in Ephesus or forward to women in our own church, the emphasis is on faith. Faith in Christ can be seen by the fact that the only way she, Eve, will be saved is that if she, Eve, believes that she is not condemned for her sin, for her rebellion, but that God is able to send someone to rescue her from her fallen condition. Genesis 3.15, God, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. That's the cross. But, but I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The bruised heel is the cross. The crushed head is the victory of the empty tomb. And John the Apostle picks up on this theme in Revelation 12 when he talks about the conquering child of the woman. And he, he's recapping from Genesis all the way to the New Testament, laying out this picture of a, of a battle that has been won. And so Paul here, in talking about salvation through childbearing, is calling all women, beginning with Eve, all the way to Ephesus, all the way to our day, to live a life of faith if they continue in faith. You see, it's not enough, is it, to simply believe once and then off you go. But every day we need to live a life of faith that God is in charge, that God has saved me, that God has redeemed me, because Jesus died, Jesus rose again. This continuing in faith, I think, is similar to what Eve herself had to do when she was given mercy instead of judgment. Believe the gospel, God may, have, may as well have said to Eve. Believe the gospel. There is one coming who will keep the tree, who will keep the command at the tree that you and your husband failed to keep. Believe the gospel. So that's the explanation of the text. Let's look at now some applications for ourselves, for our lives. And you might want to write these down. Number one, you can't fix your life. 
by working hard. You cannot do it. No matter how hard you try, by keeping the rules, you will not tidy up your messy life. At, at one point, uh, someone that's close to me picked up the habit of smoking. And I'm neither for nor against smoking, so that's not my point. Actually, that is my point. And a good friend of mine said that he's praying for this certain person to stop smoking. And I knew that this person was doing all kinds of other things in addition to smoking, which were far, more, uh, far worse for his health, if you will. And so I told my friend, I said, God forbid that he stop smoking and not change his life. I'd much rather him never quit smoking but focus on the things that are at the very core of his life, broken and hurt. So in the case of 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, Paul is urging self-control with dress and self-control in their discipleship in the gathered people of God. And some women look at this sort of with the microscope and they go down and they get very specific and they get very, if I may, legalistic saying, what can I do and when can I do it and what can't I do and when can't I do it? And that sort of orientation, that rule-centered orientation, cannot change your life. It can't clean it up. In fact, in some cases, it only promotes the very disease that you need to be cured of. Your behavior can never force God to love you. Only Jesus can force God's hand in that way. Because he, as we've seen in chapter 2, verse 6, is the ransom for all. He's the one who died. And there's no amount of obedience that you can bring to the table that can even begin to compare to the obedience that Jesus himself brought. You can't fix your life. It's too broken. I think religious people especially need to hear this message. Even though we have an external layer of our lives that says we're saved by faith, we tend to live out our lives as if our obedience was the whole burrito, if you will. And so when you, when you take a core sample of the average evangelical Christian's life, that core sample at the very outer layer is salvation by faith alone. But at the very center of it is, I've got to make sure that God's happy with me today. And so I don't think there's any other text that as well uh, portrays our tendency to get legalistic than this one. Working harder at being obedient cannot reorder a disorderly life. And I use that word order intentionally because Paul specifically calls women to live orderly lives. And in general, this letter was written so that there would be order in the churches. And so our tendency then is to go through and treat Timothy, as I've said we tend to do, as a checklist of order. And if we check this box and check this box and check this box, that we will have an orderly church. In fact, if that's what we do, our church will be as disordered as it can. Because the point of Timothy is that God is saving the planet. And he's doing it by sinners. That's the point. Not that, it's, that, this, that this building on one day a week is filled with people who've checked off all the right boxes. That's why I call this sermon Gospel Femininity. Second application. You must understand the gospel to understand submission. This is related, isn't it? You must understand the gospel to understand submission. What is the gospel? Jesus freely gave his life. No one told him to do it. He was asked. In theory, he could have said no. 
He said yes. He willingly surrendered his life. Somewhere in the Gospels, one of the, the Gospel accounts, Jesus says, I lay my life down of my own accord. No one makes me do it. And by the way, I take it up again. No one makes me do it. Jesus freely went to the cross. He went with difficulty. He went with agony. He went with hardship. He went with suffering. But he went of his own accord. No earthly judgment, no earthly ruler, no human opinion could deter him from that mission. He had his face fixed like flint. And so the gospel is the good news that what we could never do, he did. What he did in submitting to his Father's will was it would have been impossible for us. And so when Jesus, this Jesus that I've just shown you, lives in your heart and in your mind by faith, he frees us to serve to the pleasure and glory of God and not for any human opinion. And so I say, you cannot understand submission unless you understand the gospel. I believe women in particular are often paralyzed by the fear of man, the fear of not being in control. And as with men, the gospel is the only place that a woman can go for the security that she needs to freely submit, first to God, and then to all the other human people, human beings that God puts in her life. This makes sense. It would take a very secure woman to submit to a bumbling goofball like me. And that's what God has done in, the work, in, in his work in my wife's life. And she is a submissive woman. Being a disciple in the assembly of believers firstly means that we are a student, that we are disciplined students, to use the play on that word, we are disciplined students of the one message that can save. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. I also think that it's important to say that it's impossible to submit without understanding the gospel. It's important to say that the gospel never endorses abuse or lazy men who force women to submit, either through emotional control, physical abuse, or some other form of manipulation. This is wrong. And the gospel does not call a woman to do that because her submission, first of all, is to God. And so I think this proves that women need to know the gospel. The gospel isn't some kind of opiate for the women, right? To, to paraphrase Karl Marx's term. This isn't something to keep the women under wraps. The gospel frees women and men to be the people that they have been called to be. My third and final application this morning is that being saved through childbearing is about having lots of kids. Just kidding. <laughs> sort of. Being saved through childbearing. I mentioned this to, to someone before the service, and they said, what? And I said, that's not a good sign. No, it actually says it. The text actually says this. And she will be saved through childbearing. What in the world does that mean? 
Well, when Moses records the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, it's punctuated with the phrase, and God saw what? And it was good. So he, after day one, it was good. After day two, it was good. And after day three, it was good. And, it, and it's almost monotonous. It even has a rhythm. And, and in the basis of the rhythm, people have seen Genesis something like a song or a poetry, Genesis chapter 1. It has a very poetic character to it. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And then on the very end of creation, after he created man, male and female, he said it was very good. But typically, men and women fight against the goodness of God's creation. That's what we do best. That's our sinful nature. And so one thing that comes out of the creation account, as Paul tells us in verse 13, is that God created Adam first. And then he created Eve. God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. But he created Eve out of the body of Adam. God called Adam to name the animals and look for a suitable helpmate, a corresponding helper, and he found none. And so in Genesis 2, we don't have a second creation account. We actually have a zeroing in on the first creation account and, a, and an explanation of some of the things that took place in that first creation account. And so God creates woman because he was seeking a helper suitable to him. And then Adam names the woman. He, he actually names his wife. And from that we get the cultural tradition of a woman taking a man's name in marriage. So Adam emerges through this by implication as the one who is to defend and protect the garden, and Eve as one who helps and supports him in his, if you will, warrior role. So it's not by accident then that the serpent approaches Eve and not Adam. Now we all know how this works in our houses. If you have a difficult subject, go to mom. It's true. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but that is, tending, that, is, that is what we tend to do. And so Luther actually says on Genesis 2 that the devil attacked Adam, as it were, from beneath, from the soft underbelly, by going through Eve. And Eve, by listening to the devil, was convinced that God's order and that God's creation was not good. And so I think being saved through childbearing, which only appears here in the Bible, so we're trying to put things together that aren't explicitly stated, I think being saved through childbearing relates to not inverting the order that God set forth. It relates to keeping or, if you will, to use the phrase that Moses uses in Genesis 1, calling very good the order that God set forth in creation. In the context of the passage, this phrase, being saved through childbearing, points women back to their creational design. It points them back to the kind of contentment which arises from being thankful to God that he made me a woman. Unlike the ancient Jewish prayer, Thank God that you didn't make me a woman, which is sort of the epitome of chauvinism. It points a woman to saying to God, Thank you that you made me after Adam. Thank you that you made me to support Adam. 
Thank you that you made me equal to Adam in bearing your image, and yet different than Adam as the mother of all the living, which Adam is not. Thank you that you made me as the one who has been called to bear and to nurture children, Adam's children. I think the women in Ephesus were learning how to be Christian women. Contrary to the prevailing cultural belief, Christian women were called to be disciples. Jesus, in many occasions, affirmed the dignity of women learning, of women sitting at his feet in a posture traditionally reserved for men. Jesus affirmed the dignity of women in, in the way that he spoke to them, in the way that he interacted with them. Paul affirms the dignity of women in counting among, amongst his most faithful helpers, amongst his most valued supporters. But some believing women took these new liberties in the gospel too far, and Paul is bringing them back by appealing to creation and saying the good news of the gospel doesn't change our inherent structure and design, our very good structure and design, as men and as women. I think there are abuses taking place today as well. Christendom, if you will, has beaten a false sense of, no, of submission and authority into the minds of certain believing people. And I think today we're discovering in new ways the equality, the fundamental dignity that men and women share. But as with the women of Ephesus, some believing women today take this too far. They forget that our creational design is significant. The gospel doesn't overturn creation. It brings us back to creation in some very important ways. So bearing children, nurturing children, nursing children, being one who cares for children is a good gift of God. This doesn't say that every woman has to have six children by any means. But it does show that bearing children is at the heart of a calling that many women have, and it's something that all women should rejoice in. So here are some of the good things that we can affirm. God is good in his creation. God is good in creating man first and woman from man second. God is good in making Eve the mother of all the living and not Adam. God is good in giving Eve a womb to bear children and breast to nurture and nurse her children and not Adam. God is good in calling Eve to follow her husband's imperfect and fallen leadership and not asking Eve to take authority and lead Adam. God is good in giving other imperfect men, like Adam, to teach and exercise authority in the church. No matter how foolish and goofy they have shown themselves to be in the past, God is still good. In conclusion, I began this morning with the discussion of sin and age. C.S. Lewis in his story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, explains that after a certain age, children are too old to go back to Narnia. Remember that? And when I hear that, I wish, there's part of me that wishes that I were 10 again. I want to go back to Narnia. I still want to be able to play in Narnia. We've all seen children, or maybe we ourselves are or were children, who were forced to grow up too fast. In another one of his books, Lewis touches on this theme of becoming old in what I think is a fascinating science fiction parable story of original sin. In this story, Lewis imagines what kind of conversation the devil might have had with the woman, Eve. And in Lewis's version, 
Adam is called the king, and he's away. And that sort of follows the story a little bit. And the woman is speaking with the devil about God, whom Lewis calls Maladiel. That's God's name. And in the course of this story, um, the devil wishes that this Eve that he's talking to, this, this science fiction Eve on another planet, would be more like the women of his world. And the devil is coming from the planet Earth. I only meant that you could become more like the women of my world. What are they like, said Eve. They are of a great spirit. They always reach out their hands for the new and unexpected good and see that it is good long before the men understand it. Their minds run ahead of what Maladiel has told them. They do not need to wait for him to tell them what is good, but they know it for themselves, as he does. They are, as it were, little Maladiels, and because of their wisdom, Their beauty is as much greater than yours as the sweetness of gourds surpasses the taste of the water. And because of their beauty, the love which the men have for them is as much greater than the king's love for you as the naked burning deep heaven seen from my world is much more wonderful than the golden roof of yours. I wish I could see them, she said. This idea of growing young was inspired for me from the words of a song by Rich Mullins, which I've quoted recently. Here's more words to that song. Because I've been broken now, I've been saved. I've learned to cry, and I've learned how to pray. And I'm learning, I'm learning even I can be changed. We are children no more, and we have sinned and grown old. And our Father still waits as he watches down the road to see, and I paraphrase, crying girls running back to his arms and be growing young. God is calling daughters everywhere to run back into his arms, to give up the age that has set them down, to give up their wisdom so-called, and to become like little children, little girls that he has called and designed them to be, to be embraced by the unconditional affection of God the Father and know that He, in his goodness, has made them who they are. Let us turn to him and ask him for faith to believe that. Let us pray. God, we recognize that your mission requires things of us that are so very difficult. We know, Lord, and we feel the pain. We feel the pain of being neglected and being abused We feel the pain of being disappointed and disillusioned and disenchanted. And in particular, as women, I believe we feel the pain of men in our lives, fathers and grandfathers and brothers and even sons and grandsons disappointing us, pastors and elders. And yet, Lord, you have called us as women to trust you and to follow you in these things. So, Lord... We ask for faith to believe that what you've said is good, that what you've done is good, and that your goodness would be shown in our lives and that we would prove you right. Lord, give us that faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.